This is a STEAM Channel program on UCTV. Go full STEAM ahead at uctv.tv slash STEAM, where science, technology, engineering, arts, and math converge. We accidentally stumbled into the future of flight. And it's not taking pilots out of planes. It's putting propellers on smartphones. What kinds of regulations should the FAA enact in order to provide sufficient protections without encroaching on people's rights and or freedoms? This is a pretty good open-air classroom, I'd say. Um, I mean, you've got the cityscape of San Diego and a complete uh, helicopter museum. You have real aircraft carriers and destroyers just to our right. It's pretty wild. So this is the STEAM Leadership Series. So uh, STEAM, what's it stand for? Science, technology, engineering, arts, and math. We're going to hear a lot about uh, engineering here. That's what robotics and unmanned aerial systems, UAS, and the more consumer drones that you see smaller all around us are. And these are together furthering scientific uh, knowledge. They're checking out the weather. They're seeing whether uh, the polar ice caps are melting or not. Um, they're even saving elephants and rhinos from being shot down with machine guns all over Africa, which is happening. We have a drone ranger and, not least, of course, uh, unmanned aerial systems, the Predator, the Reaper, the Global Hawk, defend us on the, on the military end, our country. Um, but they're also a major industry here in San Diego. This is a source of jobs for everybody here in the audience, uh, for careers. Maybe it's a, a college route, a pathway there, or maybe it's not. But these are some of the best high-paying jobs in California and in San Diego, where Northrop Grumman, General Atomics, 3D Robotics um, are all here. So. Um, I'd like to thank our, our sponsors, which include the ResMed Corporation, which is the, the sleep apnea company, Kyocera, uh, the San Diego Foundation, um, and the Johnson & Johnson Pharmaceuticals, and San Diego Gas and Electric, SDG&E. And also, um, this is basically being shown, uh, you can see it later on UCTV, that's what many of the cameras are. We're thankful also to the media and the Union Tribune for being here as well and other television stations. Um, and our 
this is a San Diego Unified uh, uh, production, let's call it, in association with Kids Eco Club and Intellectual Capital and the Educational Synergy Alliance. So listen, without further ado, I'm thankful to all of that, but we're thankful to our host, captain of the ship, you could call him. It's Admiral Mac McLaughlin, and he'll welcome us here. It's his house, in a way. Thank you, Steve, and good morning to the future leaders of America. Welcome aboard the flight deck of the USS Midway. Uh, Go ahead, give yourself a round of applause. You deserve it. You know, Steve said uh, this is uh, my ship. I'm the captain of the ship. It's it's not really true at all. It may sound good, but the the truth is uh, this is your ship, San Diego. And one thing a lot of people here in San Diego don't realize is the great legacy of these aircraft carriers with your city. Uh, A little over 90 years ago, right over there, see that number 70? That's the USS Carl Vinson. Those young men and women just came back yesterday from being at sea for 10 months, defending our nation. And right over there where they're moored, about a little bit more than 90 years ago, there was a, a great invention that was coming to be here in America called an aircraft carrier. Because you see, up until that time, all our nation had were battleships and cruisers and destroyers. And the idea of flying airplanes on and off ships was absolutely an absurd idea. But the Navy said, well, we'd like to try it. So they cut off the top of a cargo ship and they put a bunch of wood planks on it, and they docked it right over there where number 70 is right now, at North Island. That used to be a little worthless mud patch of, of property that wasn't worth much. Uh, so they let the, the Navy and the Army do their thing over there. And here in San Diego, we invented the American aircraft carrier. The USS Langley was the very first aircraft carrier, and they used to go out past Point Loma, up and down, and the pilots would practice landing and taking off. And pretty soon the Navy said, this is a good idea. And they bought their second aircraft, at the Saratoga. And then the Lexington all came to San Diego. And then the USS Ranger, the Navy's four. This was our nation's first aircraft carrier port. And all the tactics that we use today was invented right here. But if you go back to those times, there was a lot of naysayers, kind of like today, about these unmanned aerial vehicles. There's a lot of... how, How can you possibly fly an airplane without a pilot? And yet all of you know, Apple's talking about driving cars without a driver. Um... San Diego has always been at the forefront of inventing and uh, coming up as entrepreneurs. And just like there were young people at some place back in the 1930s and 40s who ended up being part of the greatest generation, inventing the aircraft carrier and building our Navy aircraft carrier's fleet, despite the fact that we're so many naysayers, all of you are part of our newest greatest generation. Uh, 
and you are on the threshold of this tremendous initiative, the STEAM initiative, to take the technology and develop it into something that's useful for humanity. Uh, in time, believe it or not, just like they didn't believe there could possibly be a day without battleships, but we have no battleships, over time, there may come a time when there are no more aircraft carriers and your USS Midway will be an artifact that your grandchildren will come upon and look at these airplanes and talk amazingly amongst themselves. Can you believe they used to actually fly off these things as there's unmanned aerial vehicles throughout? What I think is exciting is that you all will lead this evolution. And here in San Diego, we are really blessed to have the companies that are leading the unmanned aerial vehicle uh, revolution in our Navy and throughout our nation, uh, home-based right here. Uh, like Steve said, great paying jobs, wonderful opportunities. And Northrop Grumman and General Atomics are going to talk to you a little bit about the technology that you are going to inherit and develop for the next generation. So welcome aboard the Midway. I hope you have a great visit. I hope you have some time to uh, take some pictures around here, Facebook them around the world. And the Top Gun airplane is right back there. Make sure you get a good shot of yourself uh, next to that and enjoy your visit on your aircraft carrier museum, the USS Midway. And with that, we're going to bring up the real captain of the San Diego Unified School District, uh, your leader, your capitan, Miss Cindy Martins, the superintendent of our schools. Thank you so much. What an honor to be up here to speak to all of you, because like he said, you are the future. The answers and the problems, the problems that we're trying to solve and the answers live inside your minds. And we're here to create the finest school system in the nation and make sure that we have the career pathways that give you the solid education that you need to be able to solve problems that we don't even know yet exist. The careers of the future and the problems that need to be solved are going to be solved because of the education that we know you're receiving in San Diego Unified School District. So it's our team that is working with our business partners to figure out what are the career pathways that are the most relevant, the most needed, that the jobs will be waiting for you when you leave our school system. We can't wait to see the inventions that you come up with. And our business partners want to tap into the minds of our students because we know that you have the creative solutions. An example was one of our business partners brought in a group of students and said, let's think about something that you want to create that you wished existed now that doesn't yet exist. Because the engineers actually know that it's students that will think of things that sometimes adults can't figure out yet. So they brought a group of kids in, and kids are saying, wouldn't it be cool if the bottom of our sneakers the rubberized soles could get energy from the ground that could charge my cell phone. And the engineers are like, yeah, we could do that. But the engineers had never thought of that. It took a kid to think of that, to say, what if the wheels on our skateboard, as we were, as we were riding and it was a hot day, what if we could get that energy? Or another student said, what if we could figure out how to get the energy from our hand, the energy from our body to charge ourselves? So these ideas come from you. 
and with the right education and the right career pathways where you're learning the science behind these ideas, you can create those solutions. Or what if we're going to solve the drought in California, the issue around water and drought, and they're looking at a plant in India that is known to be have the highest drought tolerance. They found a plant with the highest drought tolerance, and the students said, well, what if we can use a gene sequencing machine and isolate the gene from that plant and replicate it in other plants? Could we do something like that? It's that kind of creative thinking that happens in our STEAM pathways. So we're committed in San Diego Unified with our engineering pathways, our robotics pathways, the aeronautics pathways, the science pathways. Create those pathways that start elementary school, middle school, and for sure in high school so you're starting on your career pathway early and take those innovative ideas that the world is waiting for and put them into action with the right education. We're proud of you and we can't wait to see what you'll create. It's the connection between the high-tech industry that we have in San Diego, we're the world's leader, and the defense industry and the school partnerships that we'll, we are able to create a world-class school system that graduates students ready for college and career. We have a saying that I usually say, work hard, be kind, dream big, no excuses. We say that's how to be successful in school and in life, and it's the dream big part of it where you dream of something that doesn't yet exist, and then you figure out the science and technology behind it to bring that into being. And the ideas are inside of you, and the world is waiting for what you have to contribute. We are so proud of you, San Diego Unified students. Thanks for being here today, and thank you. Yes, thank you for the kids. A special thank you to Max Gwynn and Kids Eco Club. I know that some of the technology that's going to be, you'll, you'll experience today with the drones, what we'll be able to do with drones beyond what some of us can imagine. But you will have ideas. And thanks to Ma Susan and Max Gwynn and Kids Eco Club for that contribution this morning. And Education Synergy Alliance, thank you for your contribution today. Steve for putting all of this together, the STEAM pathway, and bringing light to the work that we're doing to create these pathways. And of course, the Rear Admiral McLaughlin for having us on your home, which you said is our home. Thank you. Thank you, everybody. All right, without further ado, let's have our first speaker, which is Chris Anderson. They're debuting these awesome solo drones today and yesterday worldwide. Um, Chris is an unusual person. I don't know how many people in the audience or, or their older brothers or sisters have subscribed to Wired Magazine, the best high-tech, you know, pop magazine uh, in the country. Well, he was the editor of that, an editor at Science and at Nature, um, wrote some of the most interesting books like The Long Tail that brought in the Amazon type of revolution. Um, Time Magazine called him one of the 100 most interesting or best thinkers. He was born in London, has five kids now. I think that has something to do with the British, what's going on over there. And um, he's founded a revolutionary company, which is 3D Robotics. Co-founded it with uh, a kid, really, from Mexico, 19-year-old uh, Jordi Munoz. So without too much more uh, rambling, Let's bring on Chris. And oh, one more thing. He used to, he used to front a, a punk band. It was called R.E.M. I think it was a different R.E.M. though. Anyway, Chris, you're here. And, and I have to say one more thing. 
the FAA, the Federal Aviation Administration. Chris is a, a little disappointed, I think, because we weren't able to show his unbelievable drones flying all around you uh, because the FAA asked us in no uncertain terms not to fly a hundred within a mile of their flight pattern to Lindbergh Field. So there you go. Onward. Thanks, Steve. So if I were to push one button on my phone, this thing would take off and fly around us, but I'm not going to do that. Uh, talk to us afterwards. Maybe we'll find a little place. Come down to our offices in uh, uh, down, down, down south on the border, and uh, you can do, do all the flying you want. Um, so I want to tell you a story. Um, when I was your age, I wanted to be a pilot. This is the kind of this inspired me. I wanted to do this, and um, but I had a couple problems. I was a terrible student. I uh, failed out of high school, failed out of college, failed out of college again. Played in punk rock bands for most of my twenties. Um, bicycle messenger, and then one day I decided that um, I, uh, I grew up. I was decided I was bored and I wanted to do something interesting, and so I went back to college and I, um, I studied uh, physics, computational physics, so there's the beginning of the internet, and then I got excited about the internet, and I went off and did that for a while and uh, edited Wired magazine and all that. Um, but I never, I never, there was something stuck in there. There's, I still wanted to fly, but I realized that that was never going to happen. I was never going to be a pilot. Um, I didn't really want to fly. I was just fascinated by flight. So I had five kids, um, as Steve mentioned, and um, I'm trying to get them interested in science and technology. And so as they got older, we keep coming up with these projects. I started a site called Geek Dad, which is about sort of cool projects. And we started playing around with stuff like, um, like Raspberry Pi and Arduino. Anybody use Raspberry Pi? Right? Anybody use Arduino? Okay, good. So you know what this is? This, it's, it's easy to start playing around with computers. And... Um, and my, but my kids were really not impressed. They were like, I was like, we'll make a robot. And they're like, we've seen Transformers. Where are the freaking lasers? And, um, and so I said, okay, well, I'll make a flying robot. And they're like, what's a flying robot? And I like literally did not know. So I Googled flying robot, and the first result was drone. And then I Googled drone, and the first result was autopilot. And then I like Googled autopilot, and the first result was like a ton of math. So I stopped Googling. And, um, and we just built one. And based on Arduino and Raspberry Pi on the dining room table, and it, it we put we put it inside a model airplane. This I you know we used some Lego parts, and um, it flew, and this became the uh, the first Lego drone. It's now in the Lego Museum in Billund, Denmark, and um, I was kind of blown away. How is it possible that a you know a dad and his kids can build a drone with Lego parts and Arduino? Uh, but it was. And this community started growing and grew faster and faster, and people started designing software and hardware. And it, then it spun out, became a company, 3D Robotics, with my co-founder, Jordi Munoz. And today, just a few years later, we are the biggest drone maker in America. We make, we, we make more drones in a month than the rest of the aerospace industry makes to, combined in a year. How is that possible? And the answer is, is that we, we accidentally stumbled into the future of flight. And it's not taking pilots out of planes. It's putting propellers on smartphones. We just happen to be lucky to live in a time when we have these miracles in our pockets. These smartphones have amazing cameras and GPS and sensors and processors and they're connected to the Internet. And, and they're getting cheaper and cheaper. You know, you've heard of Moore's Law about how technology is getting faster and cheaper all the time. Moore's Law is moving fastest in your smartphones. So behind me, 
So this, this is Solo. Um, Solo is a quadcopter. Um, it costs less than $1,000. It's got a GoPro, GoPro camera underneath it. Um, it's autonomous. This is a real drone. It's got, it's got like 40 computers, 60 sensors. It's got uh, you know, GPS, live video, stabilized camera. Um, you don't even have to fly it. I mean, sure, there's sticks if you want them. But you just push a button on your phone and it'll autonomously follow you around or do missions around, around the carrier. Well, not the carrier because the FAA, but something like it. And um, takes amazing cinematic video. And this thing, you know, 10 years ago, this was like a, a, a multi-million dollar like, research project. Five years ago, this was a multi-million dollar military product. And starting on Monday, you can buy this in Best Buy. That's the revolution that's going on here. This it turns out the future of flight is coming out of, out, of, out of the consumer electronics industry. It's coming out of software. It's coming out of uh, people who are interested in cameras and, and finding new ways to take cinematic shots of our world. It's being used in agriculture to map farms. It's being used in construction to do 3D scanning of buildings. This, it doesn't require skills. You don't have to be a pilot. All you need is a phone and the ability to push a button, and you can now command the air. This started with me and my kids. It started here in San Diego. It looks like the kind of stuff that every one of you can do, which is software and video and applications using the data this acquires to see our world from above, to digitize our world from the air the way Google has digitized it from the ground. And it starts now. Thanks so much. Well, that'll give you something to do with your parents' money on Monday morning. Next, we're going to a rather larger, don't say drones, UAS, unmanned aerial vehicles. General Atomics, Mike Atwood, who's the chief engineer for the Advanced Program Group Aircraft System General Atomics uh, Aeronautical Systems. And what that really means is he's in charge of, I think, the engines for the Predator and the Reaper. And after him will be his colleague, uh, Darren Moe, who's in charge of uh, basically software for all the uh, Predator and Reapers, the radar, the way that you can see down from thousands of feet and pinpoint um, good and bad folks. So, go ahead, guys. First, Mike Atwood. Well, it, it is so exciting to, to be here today. I was in your guys' shoes about you know, 15 years ago, and I was sitting and listening to a guy speak just like myself, trying to figure out what it all meant. And fast forward 15 years, I'm standing here, I can say I'm the chief engineer. What, what is a chief engineer? What, what do I do? Well, I'm the engineer that's responsible for the complete package of one of these airplanes. So we take all the parts and put them together. And the airplane that I'm currently responsible for is actually for a U.S. aircraft carrier. It's a stealth airplane, so it's designed to be invisible to radar and sneak in places it's not supposed to go. Uh, it has a camera. It's a little bit better than Chris's GoPro. It can see things from quite a long ways away without anyone knowing it's there. It's so good that from 30,000 feet, the flight altitude of a Boeing airplane, you can see someone's face and ID who that person is while it's up at 30,000 feet. 
It also carries weapons. A lot of you have seen that in the media. It carries missiles. And the way that the missiles actually work is pretty exciting. It actually points a laser at the ground from 30,000 feet away and makes a spot on the ground. And that missile actually finds that point on the ground and flies right to it. So you can imagine this invisible airplane steering a laser beam while another missile comes in and hits it. It's quite a, a feat of engineering that takes a lot of people uh, to make that happen. Um, so a little bit about my background. How, how do you get to do that type of stuff? Uh, in high school, I had the opportunity to be part of FIRST Robotics, which I think has grown immensely since then. Um, I was actually one of the co-founders of FIRST with Dean Kamen. It was the first team from the West Coast to go to the East Coast. And I remember going to Walt Disney World for the first time, and our robot was cobbled together. It was duct tape and hacksaw and plywood. And we showed up against these you know, metal machines that were made by you know, full-grown companies and engineers. And I remember beating one of those robots for the first time. And it was the deepest sense of accomplishment I think I've ever had to watch full-degreed engineers get beat by high school kids with plywood and duct tape. And when their robot would break, and they would break out the welder and the CNC machine, and we would break out a hacksaw and beat them because we could fix our robot faster, it really set me on a course in my life that, that has been a huge sense of accomplishment. While I did that robotics for first, um, it was televised, you know, somewhat like this, and I was actually on ESPN, if you can imagine robotics on ESPN, because at the time, robotics wasn't something that high school students did, and that opened up an immense number of doors for me to go to college and, and find a path for me. College was great, but again, I had that deep sense of value I got from engineering. Got to go work at General Atomics, started working on the engine. Uh, as was just mentioned, and then graduated to the, the cockpit, or that we don't have a cockpit, it, but it's a data link system, and it actually commutes beyond line of sight. A lot of people don't realize that the predators, the reapers, the, the drones that you see in the media are actually controlled from Las Vegas. And I had the opportunity to go up and see some of their operations. They literally check in, go to work an eight-hour day, walk in what looks like a Call of Duty video game, fly, take pictures, look around, gain intelligence, leave, go to Taco Bell for lunch, go back to the cockpit, and are basically back in Afghanistan, Iraq, and these places. And the technology that that brings just blows my mind, that someone can transplant themselves and, and the capability, you know, thousands of miles away, but still feel situationally aware to be there. Um, so for me, engineering is this great toolbox, and I've realized it's more than just a toolbox to get into school and to make money and to do those things, but it's a toolbox for life. Uh, you can fix your car, you can fix your house, you can do all types of things and design software and design airplanes, and it's really a deep sense of accomplishment. It allows you to work as a team and work with people and really find your way through life. So that's what I want to leave you with, is that I think that the key that I have is I'm very fortunate to find engineering is my passion. And I think find your passion. And if that is science, technology, engineering, and math, there's a huge frontier and a lot of doors will open up for you. And it can take you to the point where hopefully someday I'll be standing on the back of an aircraft carrier watching something that I designed come in and land and catch a wire and, and feel that sense of accomplishment. So you guys are the future. I hope to see you someday at General Atomics working on the planes with me. And I uh, wish you guys the best of luck in your careers and your education. Well, again, my name is Darren Moe. I'm also from General Atomics. I'm from a different part of the company, though, though than Mike. I come from what we call our mission systems part of the company. So uh, 
Making airplanes is very important. Making them reliable, fly longer, faster, more cheaply, more stealthily is important. But putting an aircraft in the air for the sake of punching holes through clouds is not very useful to our users, you know, the military, the Department of Home Security, et cetera. Um, what we do is we put things on those airplanes. We make those radars that look through the clouds and so you can see things on the ground, see people moving, walking around. Um, we talked about not being able to fly these aircraft because of the FAA. Well, we actually make radars that go on maybe not airplanes that small, but on our, our size airplanes so that we can in the future fly through national airspace. So you could maybe see a Global Hawk or a Predator or Reaper flying above you right here in our local airspace. We also do things like make laser weapons. So we also, I heard transformer laser weapons. We actually make those as well. So we have missiles and bombs like Mike mentioned, but we also do things uh, that can have maybe uh, weapons that are less lethal and more precise so that you don't have things like collateral damage and hurt our friendly, uh, friendly uh, allies. So I'm really happy to be here today to share my experiences with you, and I'll tell you why in a second. Our PR person that had me, uh, was leading me into this uh, presentation said, you know, you should probably start with talking about what inspired you to get into the defense industry. And I thought about it, and the answer was, for me, it was dumb luck. I, uh, my degree is in computer science. I went to UCSD. Uh, and I always knew I wanted to do software. My dad exposed me to that at a young age. Uh, but I didn't know what I was going to do with it. And so I was just finishing my sophomore year at UCSD, and a friend of mine called me and said, hey, on Monday, I'm going to start this internship at this place called General Atomics. You want a job? Not telling me anything about what it was. And on a whim, I said, okay, why not? Well, 17 years later, I'm still with the company loving every second of it. And I'm not telling you this so that you rely on luck to find your career, hopefully in the UAV and defense industry, but to, uh, I'm really happy to be here so you can hear us talk, so you can be inspired, because relying on, relying on luck is probably not going to find you the right, the right path for you. Um, so with that, I just want to... I, want to keep us on time here. I know we're a little behind, so I just want to let you know that please continue with your dreams of engineering, science, math, physics. These are all positions that we hire for both full-time students and interns. They're all very important. Uh, please keep in contact with us. Again, we're hungry for interns, uh, so when you're in college, even when you're a freshman, please reach out to us because uh, we are looking for you. So thank you very much. It's funny here, I guess we're moving up in size. Now we're uh, rather honored to have uh, George Guerra, who designed the Global Hawk and is the vice president or senior vice president of Northrop Grumman, one of the largest defense and electronics uh, companies in the world. Um, the Global Hawk, as he'll tell you, can go 65,000 feet up. It can look at the, the polar ice caps, it can check out weather, um, and it can look through almost anything, sandstorms, fog, night, um, and it can fly for more than 35 hours. And they just debuted yesterday uh, the NATO version for our allies in Europe, just as uh, Chris Anderson debuted the, the somewhat smaller Solo. And uh, uh, Mr. Guerra, um, uh, we didn't talk about colleges too much, but uh, Mr. Guerra went to Yale back in the day and got a degree in chemical engineering and, and then went to Boston University. Um, and uh, I think that's it for now. That's good. Let's talk. Okay. All right. Good morning, guys. Uh, it's, it's great to be here with you. I'm glad you guys could join us. Um, I'm, as Steve said, I'm the vice president at our Unmanned Systems Center in Rancho Bernardo. 
And uh, like the Midway that we're on, we've got a long legacy. We've had about eight decades of actually doing unmanned systems there. Uh, from the original days of when Ryan Aeronautical was here in town to what we've, what we've become today. And what we've tried to do is really kind of draw on San Diego. Uh, what we've done is we've been able to draw a lot of talent. In fact, I'll tell you guys, I'll share a little story, is uh, when we were first designing our Global Hawk, which is our franchise program right now, it, um, it was designed uh, initially by a gentleman that was from San Diego and went to San Diego State. So he actually took, he has the credit for actually doing the first design of what became the Global Hawk back in the, in the mid-1990s. And since then, we've been able to continue that, drawing upon the local talent that we have here in San Diego. So we have employees that started out just like you guys. They have interest in engineering, and we've been able to bring them in as high school interns. They've stayed with us through the programs, and they've come back into college, and then now they've come back after they graduated from college and now working for us permanently. So we're continuing to try to grow those programs that we have, uh, just like our friends at General Atomics. We want folks that have interest in engineering and science and technology, and I think you guys are in a great city for that. Uh, we'd like to think of San Diego's really as kind of like the unmanned systems capital of the world. And it really is, whether it's uh, the beginning days of the team at GA with Predator, to what we've been able to do at Northrop Grumman, to what Chris and his team are doing with 3D Robotics. This really is the capital of that, of that type of work. Uh, I'm really proud of what we've been able to do at Northrop Grumman here in San Diego. We've got about a little over 4,000 people now working here and uh, lots of opportunities uh, that are going to be here on the horizon. As Steve mentioned, number of items and programs that we do. Uh, the first one that I'll talk about is the Global Hawk, which is the one that I've been able to actually work on over the years. Uh, Steve said it flies at 60, 65,000 feet. So if you think about it, basically 12 miles up in the air. So uh, it's up there flying. Literally, I'll tell you guys, um, every single second and minute of the day, there's about three Global Hawks flying somewhere around the world, um, actually supporting not only the military when it was originally designed for, but now it's been used for other applications. So we see it used for uh, NASA uh, and NOAA. As Steve said, we fly over the, we fly to the North Pole. Uh, you guys you hear a lot about the you know, environmental uh, concerns that people have in the the greenhouse effect. So we fly over the Arctic and we take pictures of the ice flow and show those to people to make sure we understand what's happening up there. Uh, we fly over hurricanes all the time with them and, and take pictures of those hurricanes at 65,000 feet and provide that information so we understand what storms are doing. And then here in San Diego, you guys know, uh, we, get, we get storms that come through every now in the winter time. So we're studying those called the Pineapple Express. And then uh, I'll share with you guys a little story. You guys were probably in elementary school back then, but back in 2007, if you remember, there were some fires that were actually going on here in San Diego. Um, and I'll tell you guys, personally for me, from my, where I work, we closed because the fires were very close to where we were working. But what really came to light during that week was we were actually able to use our Global Hawk and actually fly it over San Diego County. Now, you couldn't see it because, as I said, it was 12 miles up in the air, but it was up there taking pictures of the fires and feeding those pictures real-time to folks so they could use it to figure out if you guys were safe in your neighborhoods that you lived in or if you needed to evacuate or if they needed to send resources to your neighborhood to help protect your homes and lives. And that's really where we start to see kind of the 
the uh, expansion of what these systems could do. So we saw it grow into that. We've, like I mentioned, hurricane coverage. We've done uh, with support of everybody remembers in Japan. They had a big earthquake and tsunami. We flew over them for 45 days, basically providing imagery to the Japanese people to help them so they could figure out where they needed to go rescue people. So you're starting to see a big expansion of the capability of these systems. And I think you guys are perfectly positioned right now in, in, your, in your careers in high school with your interest in science, engineering. You're going to be the future of this industry, and you're going to be the future, I think, of this city. It's only going to continue to grow, I think, in the field of unmanned systems. And if you guys are certainly interested in that, please let us know. Because as I mentioned, we're interested in hiring folks as interns and then hopefully see you as you guide your career into college and then ultimately come back to the local companies here in San Diego. We'd, and we'd love to have you at Northrop Grumman. So I appreciate the time to be here with you guys. I remember being in your shoes and I'm at, at the same age where I was interested in being an engineer. And I wish they would have had events like this because I didn't get to do something like this. So I hope uh, you guys enjoy the time here with Mac and the team. And uh, we appreciate you guys being in the time to share our experience with you. So I appreciate it. Thank you. All right. Now we have Max Gwynn. The Chief Ecology Officer of Flashlight Foods, something I know about, which is going to be in uh, national parks, but is also uh, something to do with ice cream, and the co-founder of uh, Kids Eco Club. And Max is going to talk about a giveaway. We're going to give away some of these drones to the best questioners and also introduce our next speaker, who is uh, uh, Mike Veal. Go ahead, Max. So, hi everyone. Uh, my name, like he said, is uh, Max Gwynn. I started the, a program called Kids Eco Club. And what Kids Eco Club does is we provide environmental ed education to schools. Uh, my brother and I, uh, Gavin, right here, uh, he started uh, Flashlight Foods. Uh, he is our chief tasting officer. So what he does is uh, pick all of our flavors and I'm the Chief Ecology Officer of Flashlight Foods, and what I basically do is um, we, uh, I, I uh, pick where all the flavors, all the money, all the profit's going to go. So uh, this is Mike Veal. He is an anti-poacher ranger, and he goes, I met him last week at the safari, uh, safari park, and what he does is protect uh, rhinos and elephants in Africa. Thanks, Max. A lot taller than me. Uh, so we just met a couple days ago, and this is all developed very quickly, but it's, this is why San Diego is so cool. We are the hub of many things, and I chose to pursue anti-poaching uh, because I actually work for San Diego Zoo Global. Uh, I'm a mammal keeper at the San Diego Zoo Safari Park, and I work with rhinos and other large mammal species. So just like you guys, when I was in school, I was working towards working with animals, and I wanted to do field work and kind of tie in everything in one place, and San Diego Zoo was the top place to be. So here we are today. I uh, met these guys when they were cruising through on a photo caravan, and they were checking out rhinos in an area, and they were visiting a very special rhino whose name is Nola. Nola is a northern white rhino, and she is one of five left, and that's because of poaching. And so Nola's story and the story of rhinos in general is what drove me to become an anti-poaching ranger in Africa. So now I'm part of what's called Specialized Rhino Protection on a tactical anti-poaching team in the Kruger National Park of South Africa. So I leave for extended 
times of the year and I volunteer my time out there uh, while those guys are being paid. But here in the States, we have the benefit of our currency being a lot stronger than theirs and that ties into this drone program. So several months ago, I was working on how do we develop drones for conservation and ranger use. Now it's being used for the military, but there aren't budgets like that in anti-poaching or conservation. Everything is a shoestring budget. and things kind of aligned, and what happened today is uh, Flashlight Foods and Kids Eco Club with Max and Susan and uh, Chris Anderson, if you would like to come up, uh, he, he, he made a, a special alignment with the cause, and basically together, uniting San Diego with all of our special interests and backgrounds, we're going to be saving species because Kids Eco Club and Flashlight Foods just made the purchase of six anti-poaching drones for rhino protection and elephant protection in the Kruger National Park. So, thanks, bud. So, how do drones save rhinos and elephants? And it's, it's pretty much the same thing as the military and, and the Global Hawk programs. Basically, when we're on the ground, we're living with all the dangerous species and we're dealing with all the dangerous poachers that are going after uh, rhino horn and ivory. Uh, basically, a scout drone is something that we can deploy from our back or from our routine patrol, and it can keep us from getting into serious trouble just over the horizon. It can also save us a lot of time because it can be carried with us, and instead of climbing a mountain and going over a hill into another valley, we can send the drone on a two to five minute flight and survey everything with a pack just like this. Uh, these are the drones are now very lightweight and cost effective, and the optics just continue to get better. So, what we can carry on our regular patrols uh, it has drastically changed, and there are not enough drones out there. Uh, but they're going to be life saving for rangers and rhinos alike because the drones have the potential to one be a scout drone for rangers and patrol for us. They can take the space of forty rangers in a single time frame of two to four hours patrolling a whole area, and we can build our intel and change our strategies to handle poachers, and we can just monitor animals in general so we can see how, how they're moving and where they're staying and where to best protect them. So I would just want to say again, huge thanks for having me up here, and uh, huge thanks. San Diego is making a difference, and we're leading the cause in it's very important right now because if we don't get involved now, a lot of uh, a lot of species will not last past our generation. But San Diego is going to prevent that from happening. And thanks again, Max and Chris. Outstanding. Okay, we have our first question from the audience. All right. Hello, my name's Ian Romanis, and I'm from San Diego High School School of Science and Technology. <laughs> Uh, So my question is, what kinds of regulations should the FAA enact in order to provide sufficient protections without encroaching on people's rights and or freedoms? All right, very, very good question that you're asking here, because uh, as we, you know, when we started, the comment was made, the FAA said you can't fly them right here on on the midway. Um, So we're starting to see... I think legislation's finally starting to come through Congress, and, and that's, I'll tell you guys, it's a lot of influence 
from people here in this county as well. So we've been able to work with some organizations. There's a group called AVSI, which is really they're one of the biggest organizations that do unmanned systems, uh, working with other groups called like Unite and whatever. So we're, we're starting to look at what are responsible policies and regulations that you can use going forward because, um, you know, people, there's been some stories in the news about there's been some issues with the small drones and airliners and so forth. But I think I can tell you, having been in this industry now for like over 20 years, I think you're finally starting to see that people are starting to look at what they need to do from a, to be responsible and regulatory with respect to how you're going to integrate them into the airspace. Um, you know, the example I used when we had the fires in San Diego, it wasn't easy actually to get approval to fly something like a Global Hawk, even 12 miles up. We went through the governor's office, who actually had to go to the president's office. So you can imagine by the time you get that approval. But nowadays, I think you're starting to see that the FAA is starting to work with the UAV makers, whether they're the small ones or the big ones, and actually starting to look at what can we do to increase those policies that are, as I keep using the word responsible, and that's really kind of the key. I think the FAA has now said, you know, they've introduced rules just about a month ago, just, you know, for small UAVs. Now they're starting to look at the at the larger ones and how they do that. I think their goal is by 2020, they'll have policy and procedures available to help everybody. Good, great question. Thanks. Thank you. Chris Yeah, so one of the things that was trickiest from the regulatory perspective is that a lot of it is built around the notion of manned aircraft and flying up there. Um, but these things here, you know, these are not like a 747. These are flying in your backyard. And so the, um, so the FAA was faced with this challenge, which is that you can buy drones in Walmart. Um, you know, you can draw, there's drones the size of your hand. Should they really be regulated the way these things are? And so they, uh, they, they, they've come up with, um, first of all, the recreational use. So if you guys want to fly one of these, um, under 400 feet within visualized sight, stay off the midway and around airports, and you're fine. Uh, so that's great. Um, the second thing is that uh, for commercial use, uh, that's now, they've now introduced rules that allow you to do that as well, as long as you fly within a safe and responsible, uh, you know, zone. And the third thing is, is that um, we as the industry are going to get ahead of this and we're going to say, hey, you know, how should you know where it's safe to fly? It's really complicated. You know, you have to look at these maps and there's all these, you know, all these, you know, rules that change depending on, on events, etc. So maybe, well, these things are connected to the internet. They're connected to your phone. Maybe the phone can ping the cloud and tell you whether it's safe or not to fly. And um, so that's, you know, we're just getting ahead. And uh, so today, safe and responsible on the recreational side is going to be an app. My question is, how has the technology of drones increased to further help humanity? So I can speak on that behalf of anti-poaching, and really it saves our lives. Uh, when there's, there are not enough of us already on the ground, uh, the drone can take basically the, the, the spot of five or six guys every single time it flies. And we can make calculated decisions so that we don't get ourselves into more trouble, uh, whether it's running into a lion pride or going into a group of elephants or dealing with the poachers in general. Also, as rangers, we do have to, to rescue people. Um, we are medics out there. So in that case, if somebody's down and you're dealing with an area the size of the state of Arizona, uh, the drone up and looking can find them a lot quicker than we can on foot. Um, if we have to cover five to six miles, we can send the drone down the path that we think they're at, and if they are there, then we're going to we're gonna run that direction. But we'd have to be more cautious if uh, we were just on foot. I'll do a follow-up, too. Quick one. So, yeah. 
So, so one of the things that our company was able to do was when those girls were abducted in Africa, I think a lot of you remember that in the mainstream news, first thing we did was put our planes overhead searching for them, so persistent surveillance. So you can imagine the Google Maps that you guys use right now, and the U.S. didn't have satellite coverage right there. So we brought our airplanes, and they essentially acted like local satellites to just keep awareness of the area and give us the intelligence to try to help the authorities in the region locate those girls and, and get them back eventually. With the future in mind, how are the ethical problems of drone use going to be resolved? The ethical problems. We need an ethicist step up. <laughs> so, so we spend a lot of time working with the U.S. military and understanding the psychology of warfare as it relates to that kind of uh, displaced um, interaction we have where we can be physically here but be somewhere else. And the military started its own group to try to understand how that warfare affects our pilots as well as the cultures that we're bringing those those airplanes into. So it, it's an active debate right now. I don't think anyone knows the answer right now. But the dialogue's been started and I think that's the key part of it is, is to go look at both our side of it, what our pilots are experiencing as well as the, what the communities are experiencing where we're using those drones and employ and, and develop procedures and, and uh, tactics that allow that to, to be implemented in the most ethical way. How does the gyroscope built in into the microcircuit figure out how to level it? These are my favorite questions. Um, Okay, so, so like just 10 seconds. Um, you actually have uh, basically nine sensors. So you have gyroscopes in three directions, X, Y, and Z. You have accelerometers in three directions, X, Y, Z. And then you've got a magnetometer, also three directions. And they're all wrong in different ways. So the gyroscope can, can tell you the, the rate of, 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 of rotation, but it tends to drift over time. The accelerometers can tell you where gravity is unless you're moving around, in which case it's thrown off. And the magnetometers are also often thrown off. So what you need to do is you need to combine all the sensors together and what's called, what's called sensor fusion. And you so say you combine lots of wrong sensors together with smart statistics, and you end up with a right answer. And so it's called an inertial measurement unit. Um, these drones have, have 60 of these sensors, uh, but the answer is the gyro alone cannot do it. My question for you are, what are the economic implications of drones in developing countries, and how important are they in connecting remote parts of the world to more developed parts of the world? Okay, so uh, again, for the less developed worlds uh, where we don't have uh, the technology and the sourcing of funding we do here, uh, when companies from the states or nonprofits from the states lend a helping hand, whether it's rescue missions or it's uh, you know conservation, it can be used for anything really. Uh, but really, the development here benefits everybody in general because, like they were saying. Uh, only a couple years ago, these were million-dollar projects, and now these are com consumer-ready. And for anywhere, any wide range of nonprofits to government reach-out programs, uh, small drones can be taken and used for hundreds of different things, from search and rescue to species conservation, or uh, even just photographing a layout of their land if they're going to be doing something with their herds and they've never done that before. Thank you. My question is, are any robots being used for navigation of ships, and what's the significance of humans if they were navigated by robots? 
So one of the things that, that we as UAV builders are trying to do is create basically what we call pseudolites, which are satellites but lower, and they can do a variety of tasks, whether they're communication relay or a smaller GPS constellation. So maritime domain awareness, which is the fancy word for figuring out what goes on the water, um, can be done by unmanned air systems persistently. So you can create a node that's going to relay communication, and through that communication you can geographically locate ships. A great example of that is what's happening in Somalia right now with the Somali pirates, where they're moving these skiffs around in these boats, and we're trying to protect commercial vehicles as they move through that area. And what we do is we create a, a persistent network of, of signals intelligence and RF measuring to track all the position of these ships, while at the same time helping our, our forces maintain position where they are, where they might not have satellite coverage, or that coverage might be denied for some reason. So hopefully that... Let's have another question. We're up to 10. Go ahead. Um, my name is Ayla Soriano from Morris High School. And my question is, how long does it take to build one drone, and how many people has to be involved together to build it? So a drone that General Atomics makes, which is about the size of that airplane right there, takes us about one month to build and costs about $10 million. It takes about uh, about 200 people total in the manufacturing process, but at any one given time, I'd say 10 people are actively working on the individual part. And then, of course, there's lots of little parts that we buy, and they all come in. But in one month, and I encourage anyone that wants to come by General Atomics and have a tour of our manufacturing, you can come see what I'm talking about. But in one month, you would go from raw carbon fiber to a flying airplane. And, and ours is uh, its literally the size of a 757, so what we're seeing land at the airport. It, it takes about about two years, really, to complete from the very beginning to the end. Uh, just as the gentleman, we do the same thing. We bring all the parts in, put it together, and build it. But it, it's its about a two-year process, and its uh, they're big. It's like like I said, seeing a 757 take off is as big as, the, as one of ours is. It's other ones, we have smaller ones, an unmanned helicopter. You can build those really in about six months. We make about a thousand a day. Um, <laughs> uh, we make them in the same factories that uh, iPhones are made in. Um, they cost less than a thousand dollars. They're every bit as sophisticated, uh, but oh, aimed yeah. at it. Yeah, sure. Ours, ours are fully autonomous. Theirs require pilots. Ours require no people. Theirs require sixty people. So, um, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> There you go. No rivalry. Next, please. People don't really like the idea of technology kind of taking over the control, such, such things as, like, vehicles. Um, how do you plan to combat that? And also, do you consider that in the future a drone would be more beneficial than actually having a human be there instead? So robots are good at jobs that are dull, dirty, or dangerous. So those helicopters that are flying over, I don't know how many of those helicopters actually needed to be piloted. You know, I mean, you think of like traffic helicopters. Sometimes those crash. It's crazy. 
to use a, a person on a helicopter in the air to just put a camera there? So the answer is, is that in the same way that there's 40,000 people who die per year in car accidents, and it's almost all due to driver error, um, robots are just better at these things um, than we are. Now, we're not, they're not good enough to put on the highways yet, and, we, and the skies are still full of manned aircraft. But I think in a few years, we're going to be able to put more vehicles on the road, more vehicles in, in the air by taking people out of the loop because computers don't fall asleep. People should be texting. They just shouldn't be driving. Whoa. Uh, my question is, I understand that all drones have cameras on them, and I was wondering what type of abilities does it have. I was wondering if it uh, could read heat signatures, see infrared, or have night vision. Well, a couple of us will talk about that. They're, they're pretty sophisticated these days. We can put cameras on board that can see from 65,000 feet down, and the fidelity that you can see is amazing. Flying that high, you can actually, if you're imaging a car, you can see the license plate, you can get the number and all that activity. Uh, they don't, aren't, a lot of them are not bothered by weather anymore. As Steve mentioned, even in sandstorms, if a sandstorm is the sensors can see through that. So you have the ability now. They're amazing. The resolution is inc incredible. When I first saw a picture from 60,000 feet, I was just blown away of how, how you could actually, how, the clarity that you could see. So they're even getting better. I mean, so I think over time and different types, you mentioned the heat. Um, when we had a Global Hawk flying over Japan, we were actually flying over, if you guys remember, they had a problem with their, one of their nuclear reactors and they were worried about it. The sensor we carry actually picks up heat signature and in infrared, so we could actually use that and they could actually see what the temperature was of the core in that reactor and determine if they really had a problem and what they needed to do. So they're amazing, they're only getting better. My question is, do you think it is possible for these invisible drones to end up in the wrong hands, like, for example, enemies that would like to use it against U.S. rivals and other rivals? So the one company that's not represented here today is uh, Lockheed, and they had an airplane like ours that went down in unfriendly territory that represented very advanced technology. And a lot of us have learned from that experience, and we spend a lot of time thinking about how to build cutting-edge technology that can't be turned around against us. And unfortunately, I can't get into the specifics of how we do that here today, but it is something that's very conscious and, and very much baked in the designs. And when we talk about the 1,000-pound drones and we talk, or 1,000-dollar drones and we talk about the $10 million drones, that's the difference, is the level of rigor that we have to put into it as engineers to build an anti-tamper and, and protection mechanisms such that um, the, the airplane can't be used if it's fallen into the wrong hands. Uh, little things that we do is we zeroize basically the brain of the, the, the system. If we realize something that's going wrong, we wipe all the data, we wipe all the cards, and in some cases we even do self-destruction of parts in the aircraft as we're starting to lose it. Yeah, let me add to this. Um, so we're in a kind of a weird position, which is that we're open source. We actually give away our technology so that anybody can use it. But we also try to be responsible by watching who uses it. Um, so we, it, the, all these drones call home. They all, they all ping us. And so if we can see... Um, evidence of use in, um, in a conflict zone, for example, we can uh, notify the right authorities. We also, by the way, have, um, have uh, kill switches on ours, so ours are being used uh, to uh, deliver humanitarian aid in Syria. 
Um, now, you know, so they fly over the border from Turkey to, to Syria. If one of them goes down, if they fall below 100 feet, they actually also have a, a self-destruct mechanism. It actually uh, it literally fries, fries the autopilot, so it's uh, dis- disabled. Um, but, you know, all powerful tools, computers, whatever, phones, can be used for good or for evil. And um, this is just the nature of general purpose technologies. And what we try to do is not limit the way they're used, but instead try to watch and try to monitor how they're used so we can help the people who are trusted to protect us do a better job of, um, of monitoring that use. Could we give a warm, uh, big warm round of applause for all of our guests, for Kids Eco Club, uh, for Steve Chapel, and for the Midway?